As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicine they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicine issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said, talking is the best medicine. In this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who've dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that impact millions of people around the world. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by Global Health Impact Project. Welcome to Talk is the Best Medicine. I am your co-host, Diana. And I'm your co-host, Matt. Today, we will be discussing the approaches the pharmaceutical industry, governments, and other stakeholders have employed or advocated for to increase access to medicine in low- and middle-income countries. We are looking at two points first, how to improve access to existing global medicines and how to motivate new research and development for neglected disease, drugs, and vaccines. While radical change of the industry is often suggested by NGOs and academics, maybe a mixture of theoretical and empirical methods is the best way to go. Professor Adrian Taus is here to share his expertise on the topic of access to drugs and vaccines for developing countries. His current research includes incentives for new drugs and vaccines to tackle antimicrobial resistance, the use of risk sharing arrangements between healthcare payers and pharmaceutical companies, including value-based pricing approaches. He is Director Emeritus of the Office of Health Economics in the UK and has held visiting positions at the University of Oxford, London School of Economics, and the University of York. For 10 years, he has served as a non-executive director of the Oxford University Hospital's NHS Trust, one of the UK's largest hospital groups. And he has also served as the president of the International Society for Pharmacoeconomics and Outcomes Research. Professor Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. So it's great to have you on. Um, can you briefly just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself landing in this type of work? Um, yeah, so um, I um, did uh, e economics at university and then I actually did a cost management accountancy and then went back and did more um, more studying. And then I uh, basically worked in the economics of regulation. I did some work in the pharmaceutical sector and in health, and I found that incredibly interesting. Um, so I, in 1993, I applied for and got the directorship of the Office of Health Economics, which is now a, a, an independent um, research charity in, in, based in London. So I ran that for 25 years. Um, I'm now, I have a part-time contract there, but I do, I do other things since I stepped aside as, as director. Um, the first few years I was um, director, I mainly focused on, because I was relatively new to health and pharmaceuticals, I mainly focused on the UK and other high-income countries. But then I got more and more aware that actually most of the the world's population were not getting access to the medicines and healthcare that 
um, we were fortunate enough to enjoy. So um, we recruited a, a very good PhD economist, Hannah Kettler, um, who wrote uh, for us uh, in the year 2000, our first publication on um, uh, narrowing the gap between uh, medicines in, in high and lower income countries. Um, Hannah subsequently went on, I continued working with her, but she subsequently joined the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and is now um, with Garvey working on COVAX in, uh, um, in Geneva. Um, also in 2001, by, by now I was seriously getting interested and um, we had Jeffrey Sachs give our uh, OHE annual lecture. This was just before he published the um, um, the uh, 2001 Macroeconomics and Health, the, um, the WHO Commission sort of establishing a clear uh, reason why rich countries should be investing in, in health in, in poorer countries because it actually contributed to economic growth um, in those countries as well as, um, as, well as tackling the disease. So I uh, got into into this area in a number of ways over the next few years um, and sort of published on differential pricing, did a lot of work with, uh, with Patricia Danzen, um, did work with Hannah on product development partnerships, and no doubt would come on to the sort of push-pull distinction and which types of incentives are um, are, are, are most appropriate. And then did some uh, quite a lot of work on HTA in, in middle and, and low-income countries, because I think this whole issue of, of how do you identify value of whether something is, is worth paying for, um, given you've got scarce resources in your healthcare system, is in, incredibly important and much more difficult to do in a, in a resource-starved uh, country where you have much less information about how well things are working or indeed um, how they might um, how they might be used. More recently, I'll be doing work um, with Calypso Chalkidu when she was at the Centre for Global Development. She's now with the Global Fund in, in Geneva, and we did we looked at advanced purchase commitments, notably potentially in in the area of TB, where we need uh, 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 new drugs and vaccines. And then we moved that concept across to look at how it might have been used um, to um, to buy. Uh, COVID vaccines, and arguably, no doubt, we'll come on to this in the, in, in the Q and A. Arguably, the uh, the Garvey Covax advanced market commitment is a variant of of what we were proposing um, with with differential pricing and a global um, purchasing commitment um, to um, to buying new vaccines. That's probably quite a long answer to your to your. So I'll stop at that point. Thank you. Thank you so much for that background. That's very interesting and we're excited to hear more. So let's get into the questions. Starting really broadly, can you tell us about the main problems in your view surrounding access to medicines and what are some of the potential ways of enhancing access? Well, I think uh, in the, the, the um, 2011 paper, which um, uh, the chapter that I wrote with Hannah and Eric Kaufel and, and David Ridley, sort of trying to, to, to map out how you structure and think about um, these issues. We sort of identified um, those diseases, which we effectively type one, where there is, a, there is a global market, diabetes, cardiovascular, oncology, where the issue of access in middle and lower income countries is really about, primarily about uh, price um, and also about purchasing power. So as it even if prices reflect costs of production, they will still be unaffordable in a number of countries without 
um, the support of, of international donors through through purchasing. So we've got that where the you know the existence of the medicines is not the issue. It's it's the it's it's the need for differential pricing and the need for um, local purchasing um, uh, power and I think local purchasing skills as well. Um, and then the second area is is sort of type two neglected where we're talking HIV, TB. Um, uh, uh, malaria, where it's partly a problem of of the need for differential pricing. We do have treatments, but we don't have enough treatments. So we we need innovation as well. And actually, the problem is that there isn't enough demand to stimulate that innovation um, at uh, from within those countries. And uh, so that's the sort of, I think, the second type of problem. And then the third one is the very neglected, the often called the sort of tropical, neglected tropical diseases, you know, leishmaniasis uh, and diseases like that, where um, there clearly is, is uh, very little demand um, in terms of uh, those who are suffering their ability to pay. And therefore, um, we, we need not only new products, um, but a strong, a strong commitment to purchasing power to, um, to enable the, any, any products that are invented to be made available to the, um, the, the the people in those countries who are suffering from these diseases. So, so I think we've got a combination of uh, the need for differential pricing, the need for more purchasing power, um, the need for both push and pull initiatives in terms of trying to get new uh, new drugs and vaccines for some of these uh, some of these diseases. Great, thank you so much for that. Um, and one of the issues you also kind of talk about, or a huge factor in this space is uh, patents and intellectual property for these um, medications. So can you give us a broad overview of what intellectual property is in the context of drugs and vaccines and how does this affect middle and low income countries in the context of today's subject? Yes, so I think how, how it affects middle and low income countries is, uh, is, is highly controversial. So yeah. let's, let's come on to that in just a moment. But if we think about it in the context of, of high income countries, then intellectual property protection effectively means that the, um, the filer of the, of the patent um, or the person who gets the or the company that gets the license um, to sell the product um, has certain rights. And so uh, no one else can make that product um, or use the information that they've to, uh, to support um, the licensing of that product for a period of time in order. And the purpose is simply that in order to enable um, the, the researcher to get back the money that they've invested in, in research and development, then they need a period at which they can charge relatively high prices. And if, in effect, we didn't have patent protection, particularly in the area of pharmaceuticals, then anyone could come in and make the product effectively um, sell at a price that was closer to the cost of manufacturing, in which case the innovator would not be able to compete, as in they wouldn't be able to charge a price that gave them a a return on their research and development investment. So so in effect, I think that's that's the simplest way of, of sort of um, describing intellectual property protection, by which I'm including both patent protection and um, the sort of uh, the, uh, uh, market exclusivity and other types of arrangement that are, that are linked to um, uh, to regulatory approval. The issue in in uh, low income, middle, and low income countries is slightly more complicated because, as I explained before, the critical issue is to have differential pricing. 
Um, so there are those that argue um, that this one simple way would be not to have intellectual property protection and then in effect the drugs would be genericized on day one because they, uh, they, they would have been invented um, and, um, and, and therefore um, generic companies could essentially uh, make them and compete at, at, at low cost. Um, so I think the, the, the fundamental challenges we faced, as I, as I explained, um, actually a lot of the drugs and vaccines that we want haven't been invented. Um, so actually the question of how we get them is, is, is pretty important. Um, the second point to, to make is that um, generic, uh, generic manufacturers will charge, if there's only one generic manufacturer, as there is unfortunately in many, many environments, there's a local national champion who will, um, who, who will essentially have uh, most, of the most of the generic market. They will charge very high prices close to the brand, um, the original innovator's price. So in a sense, not having patents doesn't get you lower prices um, unless you've got competition. It's the competition that is absolutely crucial. And one of the papers that I did with, with Patricia Danzen, um, we were able to show um, the importance of, of, of multiple entry. And what we found, um, particularly we were using data primarily from the Clinton Initiative, but there was also some, uh, some WHO, WHO data is that the critical thing was, were middle and low income countries willing to allow global generic comp and competitive entry or to put it at its bluntest, were they prepared to allow competing Indian firms to sell them generics? If they weren't, if they insisted on having local production, um, then they would face quite high prices. So, so uh, again, the critical thing there is in, in terms of uh, of post-patent competition, whether you believe in patents or not, the point at which anyone can make the drug or the vaccine is that you you you, you have genuine competition. Um, so, um, so I've probably I've I've probably said enough at that point, and we can come back to this how important um, the actual patent is because I think it's I, I think the patents are very important for stimulating innovation, and I'm pretty uh, skeptical that not having patents in low in middle and low income countries on principle gets us very far. I'm not, not at all clear to me what we, what we achieve from that. We certainly don't get new products. So we pulled a bit of a statistic from your article. We found it really interesting that pharmaceutical sales have doubled in Asia, Africa, and Australia from 2004 to 2009. One of the factors yeah. contributing to this interest from companies is stronger intellectual property protection. So why would stronger intellectual property protection encourage companies to invest in middle and low income countries? And later, you also stated that historically, middle and low income countries have tried to limit protections of intellectual property. Yes. Yeah, so, um, uh, I mean, at its simplest, then why are multinational pharmaceutical companies more interested in, in um, the particularly emerging middle-income countries? And the answer, of course, is that they're, they're, they've got economic growth. Um, I mean, leaving aside the last, um, the last few years and the bump of 2008 and, and the, the sort of economic crisis associated, um, associated with that. But basically, a lot of these countries are the fastest-growing countries and fastest-growing economies um, that we have um, in the world. And gradually... 
um, hopefully um, they will move more towards universal health coverage. There'll be more health expenditure and the market for good pharmaceuticals, innovative pharmaceuticals will increase. So countries can see um, that this is a, a, sorry, countries, companies can see that this is an area um, that, um, that is worth investing, um, is, is worth investing in. Um, they, there's still an issue about how you um, how you organize that purchasing power and the signals that are sent, which comes on to your second point, that a lot of these countries um, are not very pro-intellectual um, property, um, obvious ones being India and, uh, India and South Africa. Um, but... Um, <coughs> excuse me. One of the one of the proposals that um, we had for um, uh, UTB drugs, which we called MVAC, a market-based advanced uh, market commitment, um, uh, uh, which we wrote uh, with um, Centre for Global Development. It was um, a Gates-funded um, project. We were arguing that if some of the key middle-income countries um, including India and China um, and, and South Africa and Russia, who had significant um, uh, TB problems. Actually, they had enough purchasing power if they were willing to pay value-based prices, i.e. reflecting local value and local ability of the health system to pay, to actually create a market that would stimulate new investment in new TB drugs. So some of these um, middle-income countries have burdens of disease that in principle would make a market um, for, for new innovation um, from, um, from major um, pharmaceutical companies. The challenge is um, that those companies being confident that the money will actually be used um, and if they produce something of value, they will actually get a reward on it. And, they, and, and this is where we get into what I think is counterproductive of countries like India and South Africa indicating that they're very skeptical about intellectual property um, I think it would be better for them to be signaling that they are willing to pay for a period prices that reflect local value, i.e., that they they are they are affordable, um, and um, and so try and stimulate innovation for the sorts of um, challenges that they uh, disease challenges that they have. Okay, and uh, so one of the things we talked about earlier, one of the innovative ways that you're a huge proponent of is uh, differential pricing. So in differential pricing, it sets uh, marginal bulk sale prices for drugs in low income countries, which allows them to afford yeah. them more. And then at the same time, the price for higher income countries is much higher, which allows the company to recover some of that cost from their R&D or research and development, as well as investments. So um, one of the things you mentioned also about that is it could be utilized in low income countries to resell the drugs and high-income countries for a profit, which can sometimes undermine this agreement and the low-income countries losing that low uh, power, otherwise called, I think you called a leakage. Um, so yeah. what are ways low-income countries are trying to prevent this leakage? Um, well, it, it's, uh, I think there are, uh, there are two ways. Obviously, the ways in which um, customs and export and import arrangements work um, is very important. So there was a um, a point when the European Union introduced a scheme whereby um, companies selling 
selling prices, uh, selling to a certain group of low income countries at very heavy discounts would get additional protection from um, European Union ports um, and, and, and policing to try and make sure that um, that product was not then flowing back into in, into European wholesaler and pharmacy networks um, in order to take advantage of the of the differences in in, in price. Um, I think another um, a, another potential route is is uh, effectively for those for discounts to be kept relatively confidential. So we've also written on um, price transparency, which I think on balance is a um, is not in the interests of 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 uh, uh, improving global uh, global health. Um, so I think keeping discounts confidential is another route. That's certainly something that has worked extremely well in the in the European Union. So in the European Union, we're relatively high income, but there are enormous differences, five to tenfold between some of the poorer countries in the European Union and some of the richer ones. And so the idea that everybody pays the same price for drugs just doesn't make any sense when there are huge differences in in health budgets. Um, so there, what happens typically is whatever is the list price, the price that is actually paid by the local health system is very different. Um, and that, that enables um, forms of differential pricing. The other way in which these prices tend to get um, uh, copied, which means that they the discounts simply don't um, won't happen, um, is by reference pricing. So in other words, you know, I don't need to physically ship a product from sub-Saharan Africa back into my country. I just say, well, I'm going to pay a price that's a, a combination of the price in, 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 in Canada and the price in Malawi or the price uh, effect. I'm, prevent I'm preventing the company from giving large discounts in Malawi because that price then, in, that then feeds back into the price that they're charging in a, in a high-income country that's using this sort of reference pricing. So the way around that is 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 really for those higher income countries to say we're not going to do that. That's actually not a it's not an equitable thing to do. We should be we should be paying more for pharmaceuticals. We want we will negotiate. We will negotiate hard on prices, and we will expect value, and we will expect um, discounts as appropriate. But we're not going to try and do it in a way that stops companies from giving lower prices. Um, to lower income countries. So I think a lot of the, um, there are things that those the low income countries themselves can do, but I think a lot of it is the responsibility of those higher income countries through one means or another can essentially stop those prices coming back. Because if you can't, if you can't, if you can't undermine prices in, in the higher income countries, then there's, there's, there's no point in, uh, in, in, um, not, oh, I'm getting too many doubles here. If the higher income countries are not, in a sense, trying to sabotage the arrangements, then it should be it should it should work for the um, the manufacturers to offer lower prices in low income countries. The other point that I think we we do need to bear in mind here, which is the responsibility of the of the countries themselves, is some of them are typically, particularly middle income countries, have very skewed income distributions. So what you will find at the moment is companies will be selling their products um, on, the, on the private market or those, those um, it, to high income groups who have health insurance 
um, at, at relatively high prices. And what we want to do is not, not necessarily take that market away from the companies, but to say, actually, you should be supplying the government, which is trying to provide care at much, uh, uh, with, with much uh, lower resources to those people who are too poor um, to get access through any other means at low prices. So in other words, what we want is differentiated prices within the country. So yes, um, uh, those who can afford it can pay higher prices, but the government effectively should be paying lower prices when they're trying to buy um, for, for schemes that are providing um, access for, for people on low incomes. Yeah, thank you for that. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about donations because donations from pharmaceutical companies, excuse me, always sound like a beneficial way to get more medicine to those in need. But a lot of people have criticisms and one of those is that donations can crowd out generics. So how common of a problem is this? And are there ways to incentivize companies to commit to long-term donations? Well, I think um, short-term donations are not particularly helpful um, in, in, for exactly those reasons that you've set out, that um, it, in effect, some point, what happens when the donations stop? And as you say, one possibility is that the, um, the generic industry is no longer supplying. So therefore, um, it, it becomes much harder to get access um, to, the, um, um, to the drugs. Um, or in effect, for other reasons, uh, that the product is simply not available for, for a period. So I think the only sorts of donations that make sense to me, as you were indicating, is those that are longer term commitments and have a rationale. And it's very clear for everybody to see what the rationale is and essentially how long that donation program is going to last for. So that if it, if it is going to phase out, then it's clearer two or three years in advance and it becomes possible for the local um, or global donors to to work out how how they're going to replace um, replace that. So, um, an example was the support that um, the UK government through DFID was giving um, for purchases um, for I think it was a malaria program in um, in India, and they gave a, a significant warning about when that would be phased out, so that the Indian government was in a position to sort of work pick that up, work it into its programs, and work out how they were going to um, re replace that provision. So I think there are um, ca cases, an obvious one is, is Merck within Vermectin, where there's a lot absolute long-term commitment that's been honored for a very long time, people understand. Um, but I think other than that, I'm, I'm skeptical about, I, I, let's say I share your skepticism about, um, uh, about donations, particularly short-term one-off donations. I don't think they are. They, well, obviously, they're helpful in the very short run, but they have the potential to be disruptive, which is not helpful. Great. Um, and speaking of kind of more versus donations, more incentivized uh, mechanisms, you also talk extensively about the push and pull factors. So for people listening, push is more of when you subsidize the research input. And then the pull is when you reward the company for the research output. So um, one of the uh, pull mechanisms I was really interested in was your advanced market commitments. So when um, they commit pretty much to purchasing a product when it's complete. So um, 
you suggest an, an important indicator of success for a pull mechanisms is that not only the company or the drug gets researched and developed, but that it actually is like utilized by its patients. Can you explain how advanced market commitments achieve this and or how they could better achieve that indicator? Yes. So, um, so advanced market commitments were um, put forward initially by Michael Kramer, um, now a, a Nobel Prize winning economist, um, and the Center for Global Development. They published reports in 2005, and Hannah Kettler and I also published something in the World Health um, Bulletin in, in, in the same year. And essentially, um, the, the argument was that if you um, if you set out um, a, a sort of almost a two-part a two-part price. So the the big issue is the country the, the the countries the populations that we want to have access to the new innovation can only pay low prices. Um, but obviously, the company needs a higher price in order to reward innovation. So um, so for a fixed volume, um, there would be a, a high price, um, which would be. Uh, essentially met by the global donor community, and and then after that there would be a tail a tail price which would be close to the generic um, price. And during the um, during the the on uh, the period of the agreement, then in effect the donors would be paying the top up element of the price, and the countries would be just be paying that effectively that tail price. And indeed, I'll, I'll come on to the practice, but obviously international donors would be helping that the countries with those even the reduced prices many countries would need donor support in order to be um, to be able to afford them so the critical point about access is twofold first of all you get a, a product that otherwise wouldn't have been invented so without the advanced market commitment um, um, it, it there simply wouldn't have been the the, the, the financial incentive um, there to Either invest in, in manufacturing and/or invest in the um, in 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 the clinical in the clinical studies. Um, the second part is the payments um, are linked to the delivery of the product. So, so in effect, if you're not if if if, if you're if, unless the country is assigning up and delivering and using the product, then you don't get your top up payments. So, so in effect, um, the donors, the countries. And the companies all have an incentive to work towards making sure that the product, um, once uh, once manufactured, is actually going to end up um, in the right place. Um, so, so in effect, the, the 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 attraction of advanced market commitment is is two in terms of access is twofold. You get a product uh, available that otherwise would not have been, and there's a, a there's a direct incentive to make that product um, a, as available as possible. Um, so in 2010, so this was 2005. In 2010, um, the, the 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 first advanced market commitment for pneumococcal vaccine was was implemented by um, by Gavi, who oversaw the scheme. The money came from, I think, five countries plus the plus some global donors, notably the Bill and Melinda Gates um, Gates Foundation. It ran for ten years. It's um, um, the the, the um, the vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine, is still being supplied, but the top part of the regime has um, has stopped. And there was a recent paper. So Garvey say quite a lot about how successful it's been in terms of the millions 
of, of children that have been vaccinated as a consequence. Uh, Michael Kramer um, wrote a paper uh, last year or 2020, I think, um, estimating that around three quarters of a million lives have been saved as a consequence of the introduction of that um, of, of that scheme. Um, the um, the there were two uh, uh, two criticisms of that of those advanced commitments um, approaches. So one was that the biggest effect was manufacturing. So it led to massive investments in manufacturing, notably by GSK and Pfizer, who were the um, the two the two major makers of of pneumococcal um, vaccines. But it didn't lead to a lot of if you like clinical and discovery innovation. Um, and and secondly, in effect, there was no quality differentiation. So as long as you met the hurdle, um, then uh, then then you were into the scheme. So um, so what um, Calypso Chalkidu and, and I and others proposed in in our TB proposal, which we called a market based advanced um, market commitment, and then in our proposals for a, a COVID type advanced purchase commitment, which we called a benefit-based advanced market committee. I mean, the critical point is to introduce an element um, where the price is linked to the value. So in other words, there'd be uh, uh, not just differential pricing between high-income countries and low-income countries, but in high-income countries, the better the vaccine, um, the higher the price that it would get. So in other words, you wanted to create a direct incentive, um, not just to produce a product, but to to, to develop a product that was better or, or as good as possible in terms of the target product profile. So, and indeed in the case of the COVID vaccines, WHO did, um, did produce a target product profile quite early in the, um, in, the, in the disease process. So there would have been a benchmark against which one could have said, well, is this achieving 100% of, of the profile or 50%, uh, particularly in terms obviously of vaccine efficacy? Um, but also other issues, number of doses, ability to deliver it in um, in countries that don't don't have protected cold chains, a variety of um, a variety of different uh, different things. So, um, so I think advanced. Um, uh, uh, I hope I managed to explain advanced commitments. Also to say, well, the one the major one we've had has been extremely effective. Um, but there is room for improvement in the future, which is which is to have something that's more benefit-based or value-based in terms of the price um, that that is the top-up price, the reward to the to the companies during that initial period. Yeah, thank you. So while we're on the topic of COVID, can you describe any lessons that we can learn from the latest pandemic in terms of economics or policy that could be applied to assist lower-income or middle-income countries with greater access to medicine and is there any way that these things can be used to prepare for future pandemics? <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> lots of lots of challenges there. I think it's worth making the point that it's it's stopped it's only stopped being a pandemic in some of the <laughs> higher income countries. Um, it's it's still uh, a, a, a very uh, severe problem in in most uh, most of the world. Um, I think we've we've learned talk quite a lot about pull initiatives. We haven't really touched on the on the push side of it all. I think that the um, the case for increasing the role of CEPI, the um, um, uh, Coalition for um, Pandem 
ep- epidemic and pandemic um, preparedness um, it, in terms of their ability to support discovery activity um, is 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 incredibly important. So we're um, we were very fortunate this time around um, in terms of the work that have, or, that had been in pro- progress on mRNA um, vaccines and also uh, the work particular that um, Oxford University picked up with AstraZeneca um, had previously been doing on Ebola and other uh, other diseases, some of which had been funded by um, by CEPI and other other international donors, which essentially could be picked up. So, um, so I think that that sort of role of, of ensuring we have an international budget to support um, uh, CEPI type activities is incredibly important. Um, but I think the other key initiative for um, uh, for the future is looking at the at the purchasing um, commitment arrangements and. Um, as I, as I mentioned, I think that the, the Garvey-COVAX advanced market commitment has been a, a, a variant of, of what uh, um, uh, I was proposing along with Alkidu uh, and others um, as, as needed as a sort of global purchasing arrangement. Um, um, but I, I, I think we still, the, the key lessons we learned, I think, are twofold. Firstly, there's still not enough money on the table for middle and low income countries. So um, we've we've gone on the manufacturing side from an acute shortage, which we can talk about in a moment. To at the moment we we have a relative surpluses, as in Covax is getting more uh, manufacturing contributions than it's able to ship out to countries at the moment because um, the disruption effectively means that a lot of the countries just simply are not ready. They don't have the networks and distribution arrangements in place to enable them to to take advantage of all of the, the vaccine doses um, that, are, um, that are now uh, available. But I think the critical um, point is other than uh, uh, more money to be, um, to be triggered in advance. So I think one of, the, one of the things that is in, I think it's in the pa- uh, one of the pandemic treaty proposals, but certainly you could, you could envisage a situation in which if, I mean, you need a trigger. So WHO declares a global pandemic. At that point, um, the World Bank or um, the G7 or whoever, a number of countries have agreed that at that point, they will automatically put into a pot certain commitments and amounts of money. So it's not a question of we have a pandemic and then everybody starts passing around the hat and hoping that we can get some contributions. Those, Those contributions could be pre-triggered by uh, an event that's uh, or, uh, or that that essentially says we we need these this money for purchase commitments the other thing that i think we could try and do is which we were proposing is to try and get some of the high income countries particularly those who have a lot of the science bases notably uk um, and, and us and others to actually be part of that initial purchasing consortium so i think one of the problems we had um, was um, a variety of terms. Vaccine nationalism is 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 one of them. Um, so that made it more difficult, um, I think, to to have a, a, a sensible development and use of, of vaccines. Um, but also, I think it it made it harder to get the um, the sorts of commitments we needed from the vaccine manufacturers to 
um, to produce the volumes that were needed to for um, uh, for middle and lower income countries um, as as well as the high income um, the high income countries. Great, thank you. And I guess just kind of like I guess also broad I guess about the push and the pull. Um, for the most part, now are most um, uh, new innovations in the neglected disease field. Is it kind of a combination of both push and pull, or does it really depend on each case where case where most uh, uh, investment is a pull method versus push method? Like for example, I know you mentioned the um, the U.S. Orphan Drug Act as a great example of a combination of the two. Are most initiatives now a mix of both push and pull? Um, well, they need both, but I think unfortunately. Uh, it, we tend to see more of an emphasis on push. Um, so we need push. It helps enormously to have resources that help push along that discovery phase and that early clinical development phase where the risks for a, a commercial organization are very high because, as you know, failure rates at, at those points are in, incredibly high. So, you know, you can almost think of um, the nature of the, uh, of the product risk as being two two parts so one is the scientific risk what are the chances of me actually getting something um that is going to get a license uh, and and the second one is the commercial risk so if i achieve that will i ever make any money is there is there a market and if if it's for a lower middle income country is there an international donor community that is going to create a market or or, or support um uh, uh, support a market so so we can think of the the push and pull as, as, as dealing with different parts of that. So the push is very much, from my point of view, trying to reduce that, trying to manage and reduce that, that scientific risk. And so it gives the, um, the companies more confidence that the, um, those parts of the process that are very, very high risk and ha will have a lot of failures that they're going to get financial support with. And then obviously, but you still need, um, you still need some pull at the end of the, at the end of the day. Um, and I think the problem is, and this has been particularly true um, in the case of one of my other research interests you mentioned at the, is of um, antimicrobial resistance, which I noted the, the recent um, Lancet um, modeling work um, uh, indicated was one of the top killers in the world already. Um, um, I mean, it fits into my, I think my disease one in the sense that it category one in that there's, a, there's enough, enough deaths in high income countries to incentivize innovation, but we still have an issue of how we will get that innovation into, into lower income countries. The problem we have is, the, is that we have market failure in the high income countries for antimicrobials because um, we don't typically... The, our big problem is the buildup of resistance that will make our products useless in the in the future, um, rather than the number of, of 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 people that are dying at the moment. Although that is of is of extreme concern, um, and and prices are very low at the moment because we have generics that can be used that still that still work. Um, so we need to create a, a, a purchase commitments of some sort, and indeed. Um, the UK has, has, has got a proposal to do that, um, and there is legislation being proposed um, in, the, in the US Congress that would achieve a similar thing. But what we've seen so far is governments putting money into, into push, and the attraction of that is, A, 
it's it's much cheaper because you're doing it at a much earlier stage. So you're funding much cheaper parts of the process. <laughs> and secondly, you can ring fence it and walk away. Whereas if you're yeah. if you're committing yourself to buy quantities of successful antibiotics um, or you know in our in the context UTB drugs or new malaria vaccines or whatever, um, then you're committing yourself to much bigger much bigger sums of money. So um, um, maybe I'm being a little a, a, a little cynical here, but it, it, it's um, uh, so I'm not in any way trying to say that these push initiatives are not important they are incredibly important but without the pull without the market being there for, created by one means or another then we're not going to get um and the products developed and 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 used great thank you so much at this point we'd like to ask some questions that were submitted beforehand by the audience sure. okay i shall i shall answer them more briefly so <laughs> <laughs> thank you out of all of the options you discussed, has there been a trend to a certain option over the past decade? Is there a single option that particularly particularly excites you, or will an interdisciplinary approach be the most successful? Well, I, th I think uh, we, we've talked about push and pull. Um, I think we've seen a little bit more emphasis on, on pull, but uh, not enough, um, in my view. We touched on differential pricing, absolutely vital in my, in, in, in my view, and we've seen a bit more of that. Um, but we still seem, need to see more. And I think it gets caught up in the patent issue. So some people think if you just got rid of intellectual property, you know, you wouldn't need differential pricing. But that, in my view, that's, um, that's mistaken. So, so I think we need, we, there have been some trends, but we need more pull initiatives and we need more differential pricing. Um, do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic will help the pharmaceutical industry as well as all of those outside organizations, government, um, private sector and all that? understand better the challenges in addressing the health needs of the poorest and middle and low income countries? Like, uh, I know you, you uh, mentioned how the big thing that you're focused on is antimicrobial resistance. Even though we're not out of the woods yet with COVID, we still have a lot of work to be done. Do you think this will help uh, create some sort of a blueprint or for the next challenge, like antimicrobial resistance? Um, I would hope so. I mean, it would be appalling if we don't learn some lessons from from the pandemic. Um, we've got talk about, um, uh, well, WHO aiming to have a pandemic treaty. There are obviously a lot of issues to cover with that, not least of which disclosure of epidemiological data, which has been a, a, a controversial issue in, in, in this pandemic. Um, but it seems to me that's, that's the ideal opportunity to try and create some sort of consensus about what sort of provisions need to be made for procurement in the future and, and the obligations that would be placed on innovators about supply arrangements and, and prices. Okay, so while we're on the topic of the pandemic, what are your thoughts on the speed of development and the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine? Would you say that because it affected the whole world and not just underdeveloped countries, that's what contributed to its rapid development? Um, well, it's rapid development was it? It was too. It was twofold. Firstly, the scale of the of the of the of the impact, um, as in in high income countries, plus the fact that it was simultaneously and and so affected um, low in, middle income countries as well. So it was a it was that it was the difference between a, a serious disease and the pandemic. It was the the global nature of the scale uh, scale of the of what was happening, and I think it's 
for, I think for the pharmaceutical industry, it's a question of, of, of the social contract. If you're not able to help, help us with this, why do you exist? <laughs> so, um, so I think, I think there was a, a sort of a sense in which uh, mo- all those companies who had any relevant expertise essentially put everybody on working out and what could, and of course some of the um we've still got a, a a pipeline of vaccines we've still got a lot of medicines now coming through um increasingly of, of varying degrees of efficacy so we're still seeing um the results of of a lot of that um uh, of a lot of that um work so i i, I think I've, i'm not sure if i've answered the question but i'll i'll stop at that point following up on that also uh what incentives like other than the outright monetary contributions do you think uh, multinational corporations could be given to entice them to give more to priority to prioritize type 3 diseases like um like for example covid it feels like the pharmaceutical industry we're always in the spotlight always in the pr so kind of the goodwill gestures um or anything else really but is there anything besides monetary contributions that you think that could help entice them um, well, uh, the, the money is the money is important because ultimately they they have shareholders who who it, at their simplest will no longer support the company and it'll be taken over by someone. If you if you spend all your money on making loss making drugs, somebody else will take you over who who closes down those those activities. So, so I think it's more about the um, the global citizenship that actually that there's two parts to being a pharmaceutical company. So one part is you have to invent things that people want so you can sell them and deliver health and then you get a return. But actually your social contract, your license to operate comes from how you behave in society and what you do. And part of that um, is about um, the, your willingness to contribute to some of these global health um, initiatives and not and, and, and not to make uh, to do everything with the with the, the sole motivation of profit maximizing because that's not at the end of the day going to be in the best interests of your um, of, of your company so I think we see um, various programs of various sorts and um, there is um access to medicines index I can't remember exactly what the the title is and I think um, 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 well the your organization operates an index as well so there are various ways of if you like global corporate citizenship um that i think are are incredibly um incredibly important so i think we need we need to get a an element of context but um i think i would hope and expect that most companies recognize it's not simply um about uh, making as much money as you can in high countries as a broader um a broader requirement um, than that. Yeah, so you mentioned an interesting concept of the social contract. So what do you believe are the social determinants of health that most affect an individual's access to medicine? And in your opinion, should there be investments into improving these determinants? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, they, that's a very, very, <laughs> a very big question. Um, <laughs> So, so obviously, income is the is the critical uh, determinant of uh, social determinant of, and driver of health, which is it, and, and that's true whichever country you're living in. If you're if you're at the higher end of the income scale, your opportunities for um, for getting better health are, are are greater, and it's not just your access to healthcare; it's about the food that you eat, your access to um, uh, shelter, and and 
education, which basically, as, as, as we know, is one of the most um, uh, sort of empowering sources of knowledge, um, which, which enables people to build an understanding of what will improve their health prospects and their health chances of, of them and their families over, um, a, over long periods. So there's a whole raft of um, of, of things. And indeed, this brings me back to one of my things I mentioned right at the start, which is the, the Jeffrey Sachs's uh, 2001 WHO macroeconomics um, uh, sort of commission on health, um, where, where he, he was essentially arguing that um, a lot of these um, uh, drives ultimately impact on, on economic growth. And again, we come back to at its simplest education, sick children can't go to school, they don't learn that doesn't, you know, that makes it much harder for them to contribute to the um, to the economy um, in the future, as being one one example. So I think we've we've had research. Um, um, I think we know it's an area we know an awful lot about. Um, the World Bank and WHO have done a lot of work um, in, in in this area. I think our problem is that um, in order to address some of these we need resources and we need resources being transferred from richer countries to, to poorer countries and we're not we're not as good at that as we are about doing research on the social determinants of health well great uh so thank you very much for your time professor touts uh unfortunately we are running out of time it looks like right now but uh before we go i want to give you the opportunity to give us a closing message or questions you'd like to leave with the audience so uh what would you like the audience to know? And is there anything that individuals can do to help with this issue? Um, well, first of all, thank you. Um, secondly, um, it, we are making progress. So uh, I've been involved for uh, you know, 20, 20 odd years and the situation has been transformed. So in, uh, uh, I mean, the biggest single factor undoubtedly are the, has been global donors, particularly the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but governments, um, uh, governments as well. Uh, and, and clearly, um, George George Bush's um, PEPFAR and, and uh, malaria investment programs. I mean, we've seen um, uh, transformations in terms of the of, of the of the willingness of the global community to purchase um, on behalf of middle and low income countries. Um, Garvey, for example. So I think that's um, been a transformation. But we still need my second point. Final point would be we still need more of these emphasis on these technical solutions. So making it possible to have differential pricing, organizing that purchase power in an advanced way so that we stimulate new products as well as buying, um, buying existing products and targeting those, those push initiatives. So we end up um, making it easier for the scientific community to generate ideas and for those then to get picked up um, by those entities we need to, um, to find new drugs and vaccines. I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you again for joining us today, Professor Taos. It was a pleasure to have you. We'd like to thank the audience for joining us today, and we'd also like to thank our sponsors. This podcast series is part of an Epidemics Ethics WHO initiative, which has been supported by FCDO Welcome Grant 214711Z18C. We'd also like to thank Professor Nicole Hassoun for her executive production, Dr. Ryan Woltz for writing and production, along with interns Matt Pulowski, writer and co-host, Diana Deddy, writer and co-host, Ariana Rodriguez, assistant producer, Elizabeth Van Tassel, assistant producer, and Noah Mizrachi, assistant producer. I am your co-host, Diana Deddy. I'm also your co-host, Matt Pulowski. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine.